the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from the UK. I'm a co-host of OnScript along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, and Amy Brown-Hughes. And if you aren't aware, OnScript is in a new season right now where we have a theology stream that runs within the podcast. And I hope you get a chance to listen to those episodes. Amy Brown-Hughes is heading up the theology stream that will continue to develop this year. I want to thank a few people before we begin. Um... First of all, Ed Hatkey has continued to produce this show with great skill and care. So thank you, Ed. Tommy Molman and Rebecca Terhune have been on the media and marketing side of things and been incredibly helpful in many capacities, um, along with some design help from Katie Vinson. So thank you, Katie. James Steinbach has been helping us revamp the website and many others have been very supportive and helpful along the way including our monthly donors so thank you to all of you if you haven't yet given us a rating on itunes or whichever platform you use i don't want to be biased um could i ask you to please go ahead and give us that rating Uh, that would be really helpful to us and and maybe you're um if you're traveling right now and you're you stop at a rest area or service station, something like that. Uh, those are great places for disseminating knowledge about podcasts that you care about. You know, that they're kind of crossroads where people come together. So maybe you'll be washing your hands at the sink. You can kind of lean over to the person next to you and say, hey, do you know about OnScript? And, and there's a good chance they have. But if they haven't, you can let them know about it. Or maybe they'll be getting a drink at the water fountain or trying to get a drink. You could tell them. Um, or perhaps you'll be driving down the road and you see someone with a flat tire waving their hands wildly. You could stop by and say, hey, I don't have a car jack um, or a tire, but I do have a podcast recommendation. And and maybe you know they'll be disappointed initially, but once they listen, it'll make that long, long wait really, really enjoyable. And I think that's, you know, isn't that the best thing we can give someone? Okay, on that note, let's go get on with the episode. Hello, OnScript superfans. I'm here today with Dr. Michael Karasik, like Jurassic, um, who we're going to be talking through his translations of the medieval commentaries. Uh, But I want to first make an admission that um, I was in my 30s doing a PhD before, for the very first time, I encountered uh, the Jewish commentaries. In fact, not only was I in my 30s and working on a PhD, but I was invited to a conference in Jerusalem where I was surrounded by Jewish scholars, for the first time I heard people speaking authoritatively from the Mishnah and the Talmud about the Hebrew Bible. Now, the Hebrew Bible I knew fairly well, but the Mishnah and the Talmud and the commentary that followed it were alien landscapes to me. Um, And as if, you know, when you're a PhD student, as if you don't have enough imposter syndrome already, I was surrounded by people who were opening up entire worlds that I didn't know existed. And it was a little humbling and quite honestly humiliating. But I think it's fair to say that Michael Karasik, uh, his new translations of the medieval Jewish commentaries will go a long way towards exposing scholars who were like me to this whole other world of scholarship, especially uh, in the Christian tradition. I have with me Dr. Michael Karasik, who teaches Biblical Hebrew at the University of Pennsylvania. He also hosts a weekly podcast called Torah Talk, where he comments on the Torah portions. He is the author of several books, uh, including the very first book where I encountered his work, Theologies of the Mind and Biblical Israel, The Bible's Many Voices, and the volume series we're discussing today, The Commentator's Bible, the Mikraot Gedalot, uh, which he worked for 17 years translating. If you want to see sample pages, uh, I've posted on our website uh, some samples from uh, the volume on Exodus, uh, and also I will post a picture of a page on, uh, from the Genesis commentary series, because the physical layout of the page uh, is actually going to be part of the discussion of what's going on in Jewish trans, uh, translation and commentary. Okay, I'm going to do something unusual. I want to first welcome you to OnScript. It's a pleasure and an honor to finally meet you. Thank you so much. 
Um, I'm going to open with a speed round, which this is the opposite of how we usually do things. So just a few quick questions, which you're going to answer as quickly as you can. Okay, first, uh, when did you first learn Hebrew of any flavor? Uh, I first learned Hebrew when I was, I learned how to read and decode the alphabet when I was nine, eight and nine, in a book called Rocket to Mars. What you probably don't know is that on Mars, they speak English, but they write it in Hebrew letters. And that's how I learned how to read the alphabet. I didn't learn a whole lot of the language, but I could decode the alphabet from that. I had a feeling that was going to be a good answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> I did not <laughs> know that they add, spoke English. I'll just add that yeah. the next year we were supposed to do Rocket to Venus where they actually speak Hebrew, but we moved and I never saw Rocket to Venus. Yeah, so. That's the way it goes. Um, okay, if I walked into your house right now, would I find anything embarrassing? If so, what would it be? <laughs> uh, no, I, if there's anything embarrassing in there, I would not let you find it. We do have a very cute, um, my wife is a foot specialist. We have a very cute footstool, which is, um, the, what you sit on is Superman's chest and the bottom of it is two legs and the bottom of a pair of pants and a pair of shoes. So if you stick it under a bed, as I did once, it looks like there's a body lying there. <laughs> okay. I had a feeling we find something good there as well. Okay, uh, now this is a little more serious question. In your opinion, and you can take as long as you want here, how have students changed over the last decades? Oh, gosh. Um, students over the last decade, which dates back to the, you know, the big crash, are much, much more focused, even here at the University of Pennsylvania, on vocational stuff and the idea that you're going to study something because it's interesting or because it will teach you about the world in general history literature the humanities um that's gone and although i don't i i, I may ha may not have been paying enough attention more than 10 years ago but every semester someone here commits suicide and I have talked to a couple of students and it seems like they feel, maybe self-manufactured, but they feel unbelievably pressured. And uh, that's scary to me. Yes, we actually had our uh, very first suicide ever uh, last year on campus and it was, we're a small campus and it was devastating. Um, yes, and, yes. Um, yeah, so it's uh, public, public health is uh, definitely something I've noticed as well with our students, anxieties and depression. Uh, definitely seems to be on the rise. Okay. For a change of uh, tone a little bit here, uh, what invention over the last 427 years has changed your life the most significantly? Has changed my life over the last 400 years. It's got to be indoor plumbing. <laughs> Agreed. I, I saw an interview uh, show on PBS with um, people who were over 100 years old, and they asked them, what was the greatest invention of your life? Um, and the number one answer was air conditioning. Uh -huh. uh, and then, That's a big uh, one, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and then plumbing came around. Okay, uh, now to the topic at hand, these beautiful uh, books that JPS has put together. Um, and I guess that we just have to get uh, the first thing out of the way is, how did this translation project come about? Because not most people are going to sign up for such a long-term project. Right. So I more or less did it by accident. That's going to sound a little silly, but my wife had a grant from the National Science Foundation to spend a month in Tuscaloosa, Alabama one summer where they have an osteology collection. And I wasn't teaching that summer. And she said, why don't you come down and spend the month with me? So I thought, okay, what am I going to do in, at the University of Alabama for a month in July of the year 2000, and I decided to take Genesis chapter 22 with the traditional commentaries and see if I could turn them into an English translation and then use, I think I had PageMaker software back in those days, to try to set it up on the page the way a traditional Jewish Bible looks. And I, I would encourage your listeners, if they don't know what I'm talking about, to look at the samples that you've provided, because the kind of Bible that you find in a 
you know, in your hotel room or on your shelves, the whole Bible on, in one volume with nothing in, the, in there but a translation of the Bible. That's not how traditionally Jews use the Bible. And so the page looks very different. And I made this copy. I learned a lot doing it, and I kept myself occupied. And when I came back to Philadelphia, which is where we live, um, I put my copy on the desk of the Jewish Publication Society, which was based here. And I said, give this to uh, Ellen Frankel, who was the editor of the Jewish Publication Society at the time, and let her have a look at it. She might find it amusing. And I forgot about it. And in October or so of that year, I got an email from her, and she said, we want to do it. And then I thought, oh, w w you want to do it? <laughs> so, like, I have to do it? Uh, so it actually took me most of a year to sort of get myself organized to try to plan what I was going to do. I received tremendously great advice from um, my teacher from Brandeis, Mark Brettler. He's at Duke now, who said to me, don't start with Genesis start with Exodus. And why he told me that is the beginning of the book of Genesis, you've, you have the volume in front of you and you can turn the page and see the very first verse is pages and pages and pages, a very complicated commentary. commentary. You, you totally need to know what you're doing at that stage. He said Exodus still has Bible stories that people will be interested in, the Ten Plagues and the Exodus from Egypt and the Ten Commandments and all of that. But it also has all the different kinds of literature that you will find in the Torah. So there's narrative stories, there's laws, there's poetry, and there's priestly and ritual material. And doing the book of Exodus, I would learn how to handle all those four different kinds of biblical literature, and then I'd be able to do the rest of the Torah. Maybe we should make clear for your listeners that I have not finished the entire Bible by a long shot. I only have done the first five books, the books of the Torah. Um, yeah, only the first five books. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, yes. <laughs> so are you, is, the, is the project continuing then? Um, JPS does not want to continue it, but I'm looking around for another publisher who may want to do that. Um, it's hard to imagine that I would ever be able to do the actual, the entire Bible, but there's some obvious things that I could do that uh, I presumably will live long enough to do. Right. Uh, yeah, what would be the next book if you could choose it? Uh, what would be the next book if, uh, in the series? If say I, we weren't going in order. Right. If I could choose, it's hard to say. I, I would have to think about it. it really, that's going to depend on what someone's willing to publish. But there's two obvious possibilities. One of them is uh, every week there's a reading from what Jews call the prophetic books, not exactly the same as what Christians have. It's more or less from Joshua through the end of Kings. There's a reading from that that goes along with the Torah reading. So the obvious thing would be to make a volume that samples all of those that people would want to look at in a synagogue. Um, the other very logical possibility is what Jews call the five scrolls. So that's Esther, Ecclesiastes, Ruth, Song of Songs, and Lamentations, if each of which is read on a particular holiday, and that's a, that is usually a volume in a Jewish Bible like this on its own. So those are the two obvious ones to go forward with. It might be kind of fun to do Psalms because uh, at some point I want to write a book, how to read and understand biblical poetry, but we'll see. Wow. So there's plenty of work uh, yet to be done. <laughs> yes, I wonder, uh, yeah, I wonder just for, uh, I should put a plug in. We, I know publishers listen to us because when I go to SBL, they all seem to know who we are. So, um, so if you're listening publishers, <laughs> there's a ripe opportunity to continue this beautiful series. Um, 
I, I wonder if you could just walk through uh, briefly um, what the page looks like, and I, I guess the other question would be why the page looks the way it does, because I think this would this is the most novel thing for Christians or people who aren't exposed to this type of scholarship. Yes. So. Um, I should point out, you're probably familiar with, and many of your listeners may be, there's, there's something called, you'll correct me on the name, uh, a- the Ancient Christian Commentary Series by Thomas Oden from Drew University. So when I look at that, and I actually read his autobiography, and he said they were very careful to pick only the commentaries that had stood the test of time, that more or less everyone agreed on, that had been passed down from, I guess, the church fathers, patristic commentaries on the Bible. A Jewish page of the Bible is completely different. And what you have is one guy making a comment on one side of the page and another guy on the other side of the page explaining to you why the first guy is wrong. (laughs) Okay, this is how Jews do it. This is how we've always done it, I guess. Um, And there's a scholar, uh, Allah Shalom, may he rest in peace, named Isidore Tversky from Harvard University. Uh, He was also amazingly a Hasidic rabbi, but he was one of the great Jewish scholars of the 20th century. And he wrote an article that said the guy who is responsible for the page of a Jewish Bible looking the way it does is a man named Nachmanides, Moses, the son of Nachman. He was a physician from Spain in the 13th century. And he is the person who incorporated into his commentary over and over again the voices of two major earlier commentators. So when people started creating this format on the Bible, they wanted those two other commentators on the page with Nachmanides, and implicitly he's the one who created this page. Yeah. So at the, the top of the page, I'm, I'm looking at right now, we're going to have, on your translation, you gave us the, uh, the new JPS translation and the uh, other JPS translation, as I put the o, OJPS. Right, which is 100 um, years old now. And then in the center, and these are both committee translations, um, and in the center you have the Hebrew text, uh, which is sometimes very interestingly parsed up uh, for me. That's one of the things I noticed as I went through where they would even sometimes break in the middle of a, 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 a middle of a verse or a sentence and move over to the next page. Uh, and then uh, below that, uh, immediately below that, this is the top half of the page, you have a Barbanel's questions, which might be my favorite part of the whole thing. Uh, and then uh, you have Rashi and Rashbam on the side, Ibn Ezra on the page I'm looking at here, Kimhi, Nachmanides, and then at the very bottom you've included additional comments where I, I, I assume you had to be a little more selective uh, and who made the cut on the page as well. Right. So you mentioned a Barbanel's questions. I'm delighted to hear that you... That was one of your favorite parts. That's usually in, I've never seen that in a traditional Mikra Gedolot, a traditional Jewish Bible, because his commentary is unbelievably long. And the way he did his commentary is by asking questions that occurred to him and said, now I'm going to answer the questions. So I decided, why don't I put those questions on the page? Because the other commentators usually don't say explicitly what they're trying to answer for you. And um, when I gave this sample to Ellen, she said, this is great. We have to keep those questions because it focuses people on some of the things that the other commentators are trying to solve for you, but they don't tell you. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, as a teacher... I actually ask my students to provide written uh, questions for the class uh, from the readings because I, I feel like you can learn so much about how somebody thinks by the kinds of questions that they ask. And so for me, he, he, he's the guy that I, under, I seem to understand. It's, like, it's almost like he's voicing, you know, half the time voicing the questions that are coming to my mind. Or if I had thought a little longer, that's the question I would have had. Right. Well, he is one of the more modern guys on the page, and I, I should I should point out. I mean, this is my page. I decided who gets to be on there. Uh, Rashi, the 11th century French commentator, is always in a Jewish Bible commentary and a Talmud commentary too, for that matter. Um, but 
I more or less picked and cho chose who should be there, so I picked him. But he is one of the most modern guys. He's, he was the finance minister of Spain in 1492 when the Jews, were, the Jews and Muslims were expelled from the Iberian Peninsula. And Ferdinand and Isabella actually told him, you can stay, you can keep your job if you want. And he's thinking, okay, but I need nine other Jews in order to be able to pray every morning, so that's really not going to work out for me. What happened? He fled to Italy, where a lot of the expellees from Spain went, and he said to himself, he had already done uh, a lot of Jewish religious writing back in Spain, but he said to himself, I know politics. I hang out with kings. Nobody's going to give me that kind of job here in Italy, but I can write a unique commentary on the biblical book of Kings because I'm the first commentator in who knows how long that actually has spent time with Kings and knows how that kind of thing operates. So he wrote a commentary in the book of Kings, and then he started writing a Torah commentary. This is 1492. This is the very beginning from a Jewish perspective the modern world is just starting to begin at that point. Uh, it just dawned on me, you are, um, you are the next Nachmanides here then. Uh, no, no, no. I'm a, long, <laughs> I'm a long, long way from that in many, many ways. I was going to say, you, you need to think hard about what your, um, your, your name of legacy is going to be because all of these guys have these nicknames, right? Uh, right. I, so I won't, they, I won't generate they, one for you. What they sometimes <laughs> do is... They call the commentary, for example, Abraham Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra is his surname. They call the commentary the Ibn Ezra. And then they call the person himself, not Mr. Ibn Ezra, but the Ibn Ezra. So I actually had a rabbi who told me, in the future, you're going to be end up being called the Karasik. The Karasik. Which is very strange to me. But when I write my own commentary, maybe I'll get a nickname. There you go. Yeah, because your your comments are not included in the page here. Um, I tried to keep myself very, very small on the page. There's a few footnotes to explain things that I don't think the reader would get. Right. So uh, these are uh, the Mikraot Gedalot, but they represent actually a, a portion of Jewish thought at this time in the world. Um, uh, I, I wonder, it was an open question to me as I was reading through, uh, just looking at the selection, uh, if there's any non-European representation here, if you have any Sephardic thought that's kind of bleeding into this, or if that's even an anachronistic idea. Right. So, first of all, um, there are plenty of Sephardim in Europe. I just talked about Abarbanel, right? Sfarad and the Sephardim. Sfarad is the medieval Hebrew word for Spain, so really it's those people who created the Sephardic world. The, the big distinction is the Jews who grew up in a Christian environment and a Jew, the Jews who grew up in a Muslim environment. That's where this Ashkenazic Sephardic split happened to be. And for all kinds of reasons, lots and lots of the Jews who grew up in a Muslim environment, wrote their Jewish books in Arabic or in Judeo-Arabic, which is Arabic, a kind of a dialect, but written in Hebrew characters, but it's Arabic and not Hebrew. And what that means is that material did not cross the line into general Jewish usage. The big exception is the guy I happened to mention a moment ago, Abraham Ibn Ezra. So he's living in the 12th century in Spain. He's about 50 years old, and for reasons that aren't 100% clear, he leaves Spain, moves to Italy, and then works his way up the Italian peninsula, up through France, and eventually up to London by the end of his life. And he comes into town, and he finds a rich patron, and he writes a book for the patron, a book of Hebrew grammar or a commentary on the Bible. And then when he's finished, the patron says, thanks, see you around. And Ab Abraham Ibn Ezra keeps moving north, and 
finding another patron. And he was educated in the Arabic-speaking environment of Spain. In the 12th century, his part of Spain was still Muslim. So he's got all that Arabic-Jewish thought, but once he has moved into Christian Europe, the Jews don't speak Arabic anymore, and he's got to write in Hebrew, which is why he is the one from that whole gang who has found himself something of a place on the page because he wrote his commentaries in Hebrew and not in Arabic. So you are getting quite a breadth of synthesis of Jewish thought of the, of the period, at least as far as, I mean, it's, of course, Jews are spreading out across the, the world at this point already, but um, we're getting a big chunk of them. Right. So I start with, um, there's actually something called the uh, the Masora, the, if anyone's heard of the Masoretic text among your listeners, the people who preserved the text created a very unusual series of marginal notes to talk about preserving the text. And they actually have some things that are, that amount to commentary that I put in the additional comments at the bottom of the page. From there, I go on to the great Jewish Bible commentator, which is Rashi, 11th century northern France. His grandson is also on the page, who lived at the same time as Ibn Ezra, who's bringing this Spanish-Muslim world of thought into the page. After them, uh, after them comes uh, Radak David Kimchi, who wrote a commentary only for the book of Genesis, but he wrote lots of um, lots of other material that has comments on the rest of the Torah. And so he's in the other volumes, he's in the additional comments. He is from Provence, southern France, which is a very different world from the northern France of Rashi and his grandson. Um, and after him, Nachmanides, who is in northern Spain, uh, I guess it would be more or less Catalonia today. And he's got also uh, a very different thought world. And from there, we go on through Abarbanel, and eventually I end up the latest commentator in the book. I thought of carrying it on into the 19th century, which would have taken us into Russia. Um, I spent the whole first uh, six months or so of the project way back when figuring out who was going to be on the page and how, and eventually had to throw some of these guys off. But I do have some comments by a guy named Obadiah Sforno, who is literally a Renaissance man, and he lived in Renaissance Italy. So he's in the 1500s, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, which, again, from a Jewish perspective, that's, that's extremely modern already. Right. <laughs> it's yesterday. Um, real quickly, I, I want to actually get into the, the comments themselves and read a little bit aloud for our readers or for our listeners. But um, before we do that, um, just a just a quick take for those who don't know: How would you compare um, this collection that you have to the, something like the Talmud uh, in look and feel and content? Uh, in look and feel, it's very similar. The Talmud is also like the. Um, traditional Jewish Bible. It's got a text in larger letters in the middle of the page, and all kinds of people around it on the page um, talking about it and explaining to you various things that they think need explanation. And for the Talmud as well, the major commentator is this amazing French guy, Rabbi Solomon Yitzchaki, Rashi, as we call him. He is the one indispensable commentator for the Talmud and for the Bible. Um, but the, the format of the page is very similar. The contents are completely different because the Talmud is not focused on the Bible. There's a tremendous amount of Bible in it, but the Talmud is focused on tracking the first great Jewish book after the Bible, which is called the Mishnah. So this is from the end of the second century CE, around the year 200. And it's more or less a collection of laws, which in the actual Bible, um, 
can be scattered here and there. You can have a slave law in Exodus and another one in Deuteronomy. And in the Mishnah, all of the laws are more or less grouped into one place. And it's it's a something like a book of law, which the Torah really isn't. The Torah is a story with commercials from the commandments every once in a while. Um, and the Talmud is tracks the Mishnah. It does not track the Bible. So you can't turn to the Talmud and say, I, you know, where's the Exodus volume of the Talmud? There's no such thing. Yeah, and I think uh, the, the, the continuity that I was seeing was also, um, I mean, in content, I think there is continuity, but you, you openly get to see discussions, to put it politely, or arguments, or sometimes downright, um, like one of my favorite ones that I always cite is, um, you know, Rashi, who says, uh, I think he's following another rabbi in the Talmud, who says that, how did Adam know that the, uh, the woman was his proper mate? Well, you know, he must have had sex with all the animals and figured it out by the difference. And I think it's Kim He or someone later who says, you know, basically, I have no idea what Rashi's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of goofy commentary. I, I, maybe I won't say a lot. There is some goofy commentary in the, in the series, yes. There's always gems to be found uh, in there. So, um, so I wanted to look at uh, actually tracing a theme because you, you, in the beginning you say, how should you use this book? And one of them is to trace a theme uh, through. Um, and so I'm, in, uh, I'm on page 44 here. Um, and this is, this is Genesis 3, 18 through 20. And uh, I've been really interested lately for another research project on the issue of agriculture uh, in the Bible. Um, and so this is the discussion surrounding the curse of, of the dirt, Hadamah. And so it begins with, I'm just going to read a little bit if that's okay with you. Um, and so Rashi begins with uh, this issue of thorns and thistles, it shall sprout for you. It, this is Rashi now, it, the ground, no matter what kind of seed you plant, it will sprout thorns and thistles, artichokes and cartoons, which can only be made edible with great effort. So this is also the one of those interesting parts for me is, uh, what kinds of plants do they associate with the curses of the earth? I think flaxseed always gets thrown in there, gets thrown under the bus, which I eat a lot of flaxseed, so I understand that one. And here are artichokes. <laughs> and then he goes on to say later, um, when you plant beans or vegetables, the ground will sprout thorns and thistles and whatnot, and you will have no choice but to eat them. And there I was kind of wondering, was he referring to the, the beans or the, the thorns and thistles like in the stew? Um, and then across the page, we have Ibn Ezra, and you just jump, you just stop me whenever you want to uh, make a comment here. Um, he, he addresses the issue of toil and pangs, and he says, the Hebrew Bible also simply says, you shall eat it, but this obviously refers to the pro produce, not the ground. So he's making a, a basic uh, clarification there. They're not talking about eating dirt. And then he goes on about thorns and thistles to say, the grasses of the field, that is bread, for in the garden they lived on fruits. And now he's making a clarification that uh, that harvesting a domesticated crop is different than the fruit that they, they were eating in the garden. And, uh, and by the sweat of their brow, they will have to slave at winnowing and grinding and kneading and cooking, which uh, agriculture in the ancient Near East is famous for the, uh, the grinding uh, stone and, and the amount of work that goes into making our daily bread. Um, and then I, you know, I have two more comments on here that I want to highlight. Um, when he talks about until you return to the ground from which you were taken, this is, I'm still on Ibn Ezra here. Once again, since we know that man was created from the four elements, I assume he's referring to the stoicheia there. Why tell us that he was formed from the earth? Um, and then an additional comment, you have Hiskuni who says, Adam's curse applies only to farm workers, but Eve's greater curse applies to all women. She not only sinned, but Adam caused her to sin. Um, I want to continue following but, this but thread. But she caused Adam to sin. Sorry, did I he mistake? Says, yes. Right. But he, he caused, says, I'm sorry, yeah. but caused Adam to sin. That's right. So um, That's why her curse is greater. Yes. So in just, just this one passage alone, um, yes. when you look at that page and you see these comments, what do you see? I know that you're going to see a lot more than me. What kind of uh, conversation is tr being tracked here? And I assume this is plugging into a larger conversation as well. What I really need to say to your listeners, I think, is um, I've spent 17 years with the Mikraot Gedolot, with this Commentator's Bible Project. And 
what would happen is I would, my wife would come home from work and she would say, what did you do today? And I would say, I spent it with the guys. Because especially the big four of all five volumes, Rashi, his grandson Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, and Nachmanides, so much of the page is covered by those four guys that you really, if you spend 17 years reading their commentaries, you feel you get to know that commentator as a person. And so when you were reading Ibn Ezra's stuff to me, this is a translation job that is not like any other because if the same words were written by a different commentator, I would translate them differently. I created a voice for each of these four people to match their personalities. Ibn Ezra is a very prickly guy. He thinks he knows Hebrew grammar better than you do, <laughs> right? And he's very insistent that you, you have to read the words straightforwardly. What do they say in Hebrew and not make up any nonsense stories about them? And you have to follow grammar correctly. So when it says, um, you shall eat it, and the pronoun seems to be referring to the adama, to the soil, he wants you to understand that's not what it really means. And he just projects, I get this and you don't, so if you listen to me, you'll understand what needs to be done. Rashi is a very, projects a much gentler notion. And he's almost always looking for a way to be kind, to teach a nice lesson about something. But just like Ibn Ezra, he's really, really focused on what do the Hebrew words mean? Why did you, why did the commentators, why did the, sorry, why did the Torah say something using those particular words and not others. And his go-to, he explains, uh, at the beginning of the Genesis volume, I actually have the, some of the commentators wrote introductions to their commentator, commentaries, and a couple of them explain in the text of their commentary what they thought they were doing, and I pulled that up to the front. What Rashi says is, I'm just going to explain what the Hebrew means in straightforward Hebrew, and also the things that aren't obvious, um, the unusual things in the language that need explanation. For that, I'll turn to rabbinic literature. So Ibn Ezra doesn't really want to have anything to do with rabbinic literature. He's much more, uh, in those days, the the... Christian world was more medieval, if I can say that, and the Muslim world was more progressive. Ibn Ezra thought when he moved to Europe, he was really leaving the great intellectual center of earth and going into the sticks somewhere. And so he had to more or less explain some things that uh, everyone where he grew up knew, but he didn't think the European Jews knew this. And so he has a little bit of a condescending perspective. Um, and of course, he knew Arabic, and he knew that Arabic was a Semitic language like Hebrew. And so he's always going to be bringing in things that he knows from that perspective to explain difficulties in the language. So there's a lot. Maybe, maybe your listeners also picked up when you were reading the comment commentaries. Um, these are not. These guys are not explaining theology all the time. Sometimes they do, but usually not. Most of the time they are trying to explain to you what the text says and why it says that. Yeah, and I think uh, that's really helpful um, and <laughs> makes it even more interesting. Um, I, I did notice, uh, as just working through the Genesis volume, that the upper left side of the page where Rashi usually features is going to uh, more often than not be a good philological note, uh, including some creative philology where he says, well, here's how you could have said it in Hebrew, um, but here's how they chose to say it in, uh, instead. Um, I want to uh, flip over to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, 
or one through three, and this is on page 48. Um, we're, we're not going to go very far. I just, uh, thought these are some juicy texts. And, and like you said, I initially thought maybe Genesis one and two, we should talk about. And then I saw the, <laughs> the amount of commentary that would, that would be hopeless, uh, for a short podcast. Um, maybe we should say on the air, Drew, for those of your listeners who have never seen a page like this. So I'm looking at page 48 with you. There are three short lines of Hebrew way up at the top of the page and hundreds and hundreds of English words on the page surrounding it. There's maybe 15, 20 words of Hebrew that are being discussed. So it's uh, the last word of verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, all of verse 2, and the first six words of Genesis 4, verse 3. And that's an entire page of Bible in this format. Yeah, and I think even even that comment at the end that it's just the first six words and so it ends with and Cain brought the fruit of the ground uh, or the fruit of depending on how it's translated and it just cuts off and, and you got to carry it over to the, the other page and I should also mention this is kept in um, in style of Semitic languages it's right to left so the what you know what English speakers would think of the back of the book is the front and we're working across the page from right to left as well uh, um, I'm sorry we're working from passage to passage right to left so you have to pick up the Sometimes you, it's a little tricky to go to the page to the left and figure out where you're picking up the commentary at. Um, that's no fault of yours or the typesetter. That's just the reality on the ground here. Right. This, it's very traditional for Jewish Bibles of this kind and even the English language ones to start at what looks to an English speaker like the back of the book. So you're turning pages in the opposite direction. Yeah, and so this is a uh, this is a great passage, I think, because it's a, it's a question that uh, you know I teach uh, Intro to Hebrew Bible every year and uh, or every semester, and this comes up all the time. Why why was one offering accepted by uh, by Abel and not Cain's? Right. So, uh, what's the difference between them? And you already see it in in a, a Barbanel's questions. He says um, it makes no sense for Cain to be a tiller of the soil. So that he could eat bread, but uh, I'm sorry, it makes sense. So, it, sorry, it does yeah, make yeah, sense. That's, sorry, this is the point I always make. He does the Lord's work, right? He, he uh, works the ground. Um, it makes sense that he should be the tiller of the soil so that he can eat bread. But why did Abel become a keeper of the sheep? Eating meat was forbidden. What moved Cain and Abel to bring offerings to the Lord? Adam never did so. I, um, I think those are the questions that everybody is asking around this point, or if they're stopping and thinking about it. Um, Drew, if I may, I'm going to put in a commercial for um, another kind of Jewish learning that is more or less at the same time of the Mishnah and the Talmud, but that actually does focus on the Bible, called Midrash, M-I-D-R-A-S-H. And an amazing way to teach Midrash is to give people—I used to do this with my students— to let them sit down and read Genesis chapter 4, mostly the story of Cain and Abel, in English, and write down all the questions they could think of. And if you, if you spend any reasonable amount of time at it, you can come up with 100 questions very, very easily. And then you turn to the Midrash on that chapter, and you find that the stories in the Midrash answer those questions. Yeah, like I said, I, I identified quite often with the Barbanel's questions. There, it turns out that some of the times they're the exact questions I'm asking my students and, and looking at their faces, getting more and more perplexed, like, oh, I never thought about that before. Um, and so this kind of becomes the question of what's the difference between these two occupations? What divides these uh, two men? So Kim He says, uh, Abel became a keeper of the sheep and Cain became a tiller of the soil. When they grew up, they chose different ways of life. Abel drank milk to survive and wore wool clothing. Neither of them ate meat, which was yet forbidden. Uh, and so you, you see this kind of work where they're trying to piece together and some, you can always see the rest of the Torah creeping in here, right? So, uh, um, or this, I should say this kind of tension between uh, almost like, are they following the Torah yet? Should we, should we hold them to a Torah standard or, or no at this point, uh, or even the Noahide standard at this point? That's really not going to, that's really not going to happen too much until the patriarchs come along, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What they're talking about here is this is, it's not Torah law at all, but if you read the 
original creation story, everybody's supposed to be vegetarian. That's, that's Bible. That's not Jewish. Okay. And after the flood, God says, okay, I realize you guys are a little bloodthirsty, you human beings, and you want to eat meat. It's okay. So at this stage in the story, they're not eating meat, supposedly. And so they're working out all the, um, all the, what I call the gaps in the story that are, um, infuriating for some people, I always try to say, well, you know, there's gaps in every story. Maybe we should focus on what they're trying to focus us on, which I think is what they're working through here as well. And then you get these very interesting comments. Uh, this is from Gersonides, uh, one we haven't mentioned yet, um, who says uh, about the same passage, both of these professions, raising animals and raising crops, are incredibly difficult to develop. No one could possibly have figured out through experiment or chance how to raise silkworms. And the same is true of growing plants. That is why the Torah honors those who develop these professions, which even so must have required some emanation from the divine. So I see that phrase emanation from the divine, and I, I really wonder what he's doing there. Um, is, is this a bit of medieval Hellenism uh, uh, being uh, worked out here, or is this something else completely? Yes, a, li- a little bit of that. Uh, that's, that's kind of outside my professional training at least, but I've picked up lots of these things working on the project. So Gersonides is one of the much later of the commentators, maybe the 14th century, it says in the front of the book, and I've forgotten the the dates. He's definitely someone who is focused on philosophy, so that's that's what you're calling Hellenism, okay? But medieval philosophy was the outcome of Greek philosophy. He's got that in mind. And he's also got a certain amount of Jewish mysticism, which suggests that, uh, you know, we only exist because somehow God is uh, keeping, keeping the monitor on, on his computer, right? And at every instant, the world is being refreshed by some kind of overflow, some emanation from the divine. And most of these guys are thinking about the Torah as if it is uh, quite factual. So here you have a man and a woman. They have two boys. How all of a sudden is one of these boys going to learn how to farm? And Gersonides is thinking all of these professions that by the end of the chapter uh, are going to be developed, musical instruments and weaponry and this and that, these are amazing uh, creations of the human spirit, and how could people have done this on their own? That's what Gersonides is saying. Right, and the, and the idea of things being immediately created is, is not a foreign concept then. So this, it's not, there's nothing crazy about the, uh, the ideas that they're floating around here. Um, and I, you know, I think actually even amongst Christians today, if you teach a Bible study on uh, these passages— uh, most thinking people are asking these questions at some point. Well, exactly how did this work? What are the mechanics of this, if this is just meant to be a straightforward story of what happened? Uh, I, wanna, I, wanna I would say, say go ahead. It, yeah, may, go ahead. may I, Drew, when you use the words straightforward story, so many people, certainly among Jews, and I imagine must be true with Christians as well, when they think of the Bible, they're really thinking of Bible stories, the stuff that we learned when we were little kids. These guys, my commentator friends, are doing something very different. They're reading the text of the Bible with incredible care. And so they are interested in the story, but they're also very interested in why the story was told the way it was told. There's, as you say, there's all these gaps. They, the, the Bible could have said many other things that it doesn't say. Why is the story being told this way? And that's not so much focused on the Sunday school level of a Bible story, but on what the Bible is actually trying to say in its own words, which is different. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction uh, to make. Um, I want to talk about one final passage. Um, These are all personal favorites of mine, so just forgive me for taking the privilege. Uh, On page 60 here, this is is in the genealogy that ends in uh, Noah and um, the naming of Noah in particular with the, again, coming back to the agricultural issue of the curse of the dirt. Um, 
And lots of interesting stuff here uh, that carries over across the page as well. But uh, Rushbaum here. Mm -hmm. This is Rashi's grandson. Yes. So 11th century northern France. So um, this is the question of um, this one will provide us relief, which is the etymological root of his name, Noach, um, as, as settles or relieves in some way. And so he says, rather, it is a prayer. May this one provide us with relief. He was the first to be born after the death of uh, Adam, and may it be uh, God's will that this one will straighten what was twisted. And I'm, I'm actually going across the page now to the next section, which is Lamech understood that the curse of Adam must eat, uh, must eat by toil all the days of your life, in quotes there, literally all the days of your life, referring to Adam there. And so th I thought this was really interesting because He's tracing the genealogies. He's noticing that if you just do the numbers, you'll realize that uh, Adam lives through that entire genealogy of these uh, aged patriarchs, or I'm sorry, these are not patriarchs, um, <clears throat> pre-patriarchs. The first generations, yeah, the, the antediluvians. There you go. Uh, the antediluvian generation that Adam survives all the way to the end and dies just prior uh, to Noah's birth. So he doesn't get to see that. And so they're putting this together with the, uh, it, for lack of better terms, how literalistically we should take this all the days of your life phrase that's cursed uh, to Adam. Um, and then, uh, and I love a bar. May I say? Yeah, go ahead, please. The, uh, the other issue that's going on there is Lamech names his kid Noah and says, according to this new JPS translation, this one will provide us relief. And the question is, how did he know that? The, you know, the kid was just born. He's in, they haven't even had time to wrap him in diapers. How, how do they know that he will do that? So Rushbaum is also answering the question, how did he know to give him that name? He said, no, no, it's not a prediction. It's not a statement even. It's a prayer. Right. And, and actually, I was just going to read a Barbanel's question, which goes after the ah, same thing. Sorry. <laughs> but no, no, it's perfect. When, okay. when Lamech named his son Noah, how did he know that this one would provide us relief from our work and the toil of our hands? If he was such a prophet, why didn't he know the flood was coming? <laughs> which is a great question as well. Um, but I think Rashbam is attempting to relieve uh, that tension there. And then here you see Rashi uh, dealing with the philological question. Um, of, uh, sorry, the, this is the, uh, the question of yana, uh, memenu, right? Uh, to interpret the verb yana. Yana hamenu, yes. Yeah, yana hamenu, uh, as related to the name Noach, uh, if it were yanachim, comfort, you would have to call him menachem, which is a very popular name these days. Um, and so you're getting all of these layers, and I think one of the things you know for me is who again this is a this is a alien landscape uh, for me. I, unfortunately, I wasn't raised uh, thinking through Jewish commentary. Um, I should tell you, I should tell your readers that I also was not raised this way. Even though for many centuries Jewish kids were taught Rashi in what we would call kindergarten, I was not raised that way, and I've had to learn it as an adult. Well, that's actually very encouraging, um, and I th I think that the and I, I don't want to prescribe anything, but I think one of the benefits of coming to Jewish thought through the medieval commentaries is you're already getting a taste of what's going on in the Talmud. Um, you're getting some interaction at times with uh, the Talmudic rabbis as well in the medieval commentaries, uh, and some summation of them. So it's. Um, it seems to be a great nexus point uh, to touch lots of areas of Jewish thought and the, and the thought that's going to develop after it as well, I think. Yes, I agree. Um, maybe just real briefly before we move into the closing speed round, um, do, do you think there are any particular skills or insights that we gain from reading these commentaries or maybe something that we can learn to see that we wouldn't have otherwise seen if we never touched these commentaries? Um. I really find that these guys read the Bible much more carefully than I ever did and much more carefully than most of the people I encounter ever did. And if you are someone who respects the Bible, loves the Bible, is drawn to the Bible for whatever reason, that means you're drawn to the words and these guys will read the words very, very carefully 
for you. So they disagree with each other sometimes, and you don't have to agree with any of them, but you'll see what the issues are, and you can solve them in your own way. And frankly, as a Bible scholar myself, uh, I, I have a PhD in Bible and the ancient Near East, so I consider these these commentators my peers, they are doing in a different era what I'm trying to do now. Um, it's nice to have friends. It's nice to have people who care about the Bible the way that I do. Okay? And you really, you really, if you sit down and not just dip in once in a while, but engage with one of these people or more of them, you're going to find a personality. You're going to meet a person. You're going to meet a person from the Middle Ages who will talk to you in contemporary English. That's amazing to me. Yeah, I was I was laughing a little bit when you said you're finding friends, not because what you said was funny, but I was imagining um, if if your friends, these guys, were at SBL with us, I'd probably want to hang out with them and talk to them <laughs> more than a lot of other biblical scholars I might run into at SBL. But I think uh, a lot of people would be hanging out with them if they if they were uh, <laughs> if they came to SBL. So I appreciate that. Um, okay, let's end this with a speed round. Um, and uh, you have to answer honestly, because uh, this is being recorded for posterity. Um, have you ever done anything, ever, at all, and then exclaimed, YOLO? No. <laughs> Darn. Thought I might get something out of that one. Do you know what YOLO means? You only live once. You got it. All right. Well, I'm glad to hear you haven't said it. Uh, what is one of the more, you've already said there's several, but what's one of the more just bizarre or uh, interpretations or bizarre interpretive move that you've seen in these commentaries. Um, I'll tell. I'll mention one because you mentioned the name of Gersonides that you won't find in this book. But Gersonides wrote an entire commentary on the Song of Songs, mm. explaining that if you read it carefully and with understanding, you can learn everything you need to know about mathematics. <laughs> That was a really well-placed pause right before mathematics. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Okay. um, If you're leading a trip to Israel, I assume you've been to Israel before? Um, I actually was there last week. Okay. (laughs) So that's right. Uh, If you're leading a trip to Israel with people who've never been there before in their life, what are going to be the top three places you want to take them? Wow. That's actually a little difficult. I would take them to... I guess I I kind of feel obligated to take them to the Western Wall in Jerusalem um, and maybe to the tunnels underground. And after that, I'm not quite sure. The the one place, I don't don't have two more places to mention um, because I spent a lot of time years and years ago, not recently, but years and years ago living there. So... I, I don't think of it as a tourist destination anymore. But the one place that I would take people that they're n- not likely to get to has nothing to do with the Bible, as far as I'm aware. But it's a place called the Hexagonal Pool. And you have to kind of go off-road a little bit and then climb down to this amazing natural pool, a little bit of small waterfall, and kind of a... It, it's like a giant-sized crystal of hexagons that you're swimming inside of. Wonderfully, wonderfully refreshing place. You're in nature and not in civilization. And uh, I've never seen anything like it anywhere else in the world. I I did not know about that. I'm going to, I'll be there this summer. I'm going to go look it up, (laughs) see if I can find it. Um, In hexagonal pools in English. All right. Um, uh, now, this is, again, you have to be honest here with me. Have you ever pretended like you understood a lecture or a paper when you actually had no idea what the person was talking about? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can but you name the speaker? What I would rather do is tell you a different story <laughs> when I knew I didn't understand and I didn't, and I didn't know what to say. I, f- I listened very carefully, and I heard the first paragraph, and at the end of the first paragraph, I fell off the train, and for the next hour, I didn't understand anything whatsoever. And walking out of the lecture, uh, I ran into a guy who's a very distinguished scholar, 
this is when I was in grad school, and he looked at me and said, did you get any of that? And I thought, oh, it's okay. I can do this. If he didn't understand it, I don't have to understand it either. Yes, I've been that speaker before, I'm sure, many times. So. <laughs> um, okay, this is a difficult question. Uh, what idea in biblical studies would you like to see go the way of the dodo bird? If you could just kill it off today. Right, so I'm going to be Rashi and not take the negative route and go negative. What I would like to say is I'd like to see biblical scholars do what my friends, the guys, do. Read the words, explain why the Bible, what they mean, and why the Bible is saying that. That's something that I think a lot of scholars have gotten away from, and I think that should be at the base of everything that Bible scholars do. Agree wholeheartedly. Um, what's the funniest one-liner joke that you know? <laughs> uh, hmm. I could give you a two-liner, but nobody's going to get it, right? Wait, we can we can take two-liner. We can go with. We'll open up the category. Okay. So the woman says to the man, "Voulez-vous coucher avec moi?" And the man says, "Niet, spasiba, yauja pakushal." You're not laughing. <laughs> oh, now you're laughing. Okay, good. I like multilingual jokes, which you can't really tell to anyone. You might have else, to say so. the second half slower for our listeners, and maybe they can play it into their uh, Google Translate. Um, okay, uh, what's the most significant book in biblical studies in this last generation? Gee, um, you had to know that one was coming. I, I, I that never occurred to me you were going to ask that. So I'm going to say something a little difficult, which is that a book that is incredibly hard to read, I think, is the one that, from my perspective, made the biggest impact. Uh, my teacher, Michael Fishbane from, from Brandeis at the time, now at the University of Chicago, wrote a book called Biblical Interpretation in Ancient Israel. And that is really the book, I think, that reshaped biblical studies in my era, giving the idea that the kind of interpretation that Jews do after the biblical period was already happening while the Bible itself was being developed. So the shorthand for that is inner biblical exegesis. And that was really not a thing, I think, 50 years ago, and now everybody accepts it. And that made a tremendous change from my perspective as a Jewish biblical scholar. Yeah, I, that's a, I don't know if we've had anybody mention that book before, but I don't know why, because, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan um, of, uh, you, you know what I found out a couple of years ago? I was helping direct a conference in Jerusalem, and we had Michael Fishbane and all these senior Jewish scholars. Uh, and, and Michael Fishbane, uh, we had to Skype him in because he couldn't fly over. And, uh, and they start asking questions after his paper, and they all addressed him by the name Buzzy. Yes. <laughs> They're like, so, Buzzy. Uh, and I'm looking around going, what, what's going on here? You know, and uh, it's one of those things when I, and I said, uh, you know, afterwards I was talking to someone. I was like, you guys call him Buzzy? He's like, yeah, we all know each other. You know, this is a, a Jewish scholar. It's a small world. You know, like, there's hundreds of millions of you Christians out there, right? There's not that many of us. Right. So I never called him that when I was a grad student. I did address most of my other teachers by their first names. I never called him Buzzy in those days. <laughs> Today I would if I, if, if I were to see him. And I have no idea how he got the name. But if you look at him... Somehow it fits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it didn't seem completely askew. Okay. Um, do you want to hear my favorite knock-knock joke? Why not? <laughs> okay, you start. Knock-knock. Who's there? Sam and Janet. Sam and Janet who? Sam and Janet evening. <laughs> you may see a stranger. Was that your favorite one? You know, but you took that joke head on and you nailed it. I love it. <laughs> That usually gets people. But final question. At SBL, the annual meeting, I assume you go some years. Um, uh, what do you look forward to most at that meeting, and what do you dread? Um, I look forward to seeing friends. I wouldn't say there's a whole lot that I dread. I do. I always end up in sessions that 
sound like they're going to be interesting and they aren't that you know it's not really dread but yeah am i going to waste my time in a paper session um you always learn something but and there's there's just there's i don't know how many of your listeners are non-professionals and don't know this but there's hundreds there's a hundred sessions going on at once and i guess you dread that you picked the wrong one okay there's always at least three or four you could go to uh and you can only be in one place so and, and you know what the dirty little secret is well i don't know if it's true or not but i'll just say it uh, as gossip here is because i used to co-chair a session that a friend of, uh, and me we started together and we noticed that they stacked us up with every other session that basically people would have parallel interest in. And we think there might have been a little bit of social Darwinism going on with SBL saying, <laughs> like, let's see who gets the most people at their session, you know, and make them choose uh, which one they want to go to. So I, I always, it always seems like when I find a session or when I'm in a session, it's when all the papers I want to give. Well, uh, Dr. Krasik, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for... Uh, a service project in translation. I think uh, a lot of scholars are out there to make a name. After reading your Theologies of the Mind, I thought, this guy, uh, this guy's great. I can't read, uh, wait to read more from him. And then I saw there wasn't a whole lot for a while. Um, and so it'd be very easy for you to make a career of your own thinking. And uh, you spent all of this time uh, providing this service to us. So I genuinely appreciate that. It's very kind of you to say that. I do get to express myself on my weekly podcast, right? That's true. And you can tune into that. It's uh, Torah Talk. Is that correct? Right. Thanks again. And that's all we have for OnScript uh, this week. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate.